Welcome to Project Update, a podcast about the projects we're working on and the side projects I'm subjecting Dave to. I'm Joe Simpson. And I'm Dave Ramsey. How's it going, Dave? Doing pretty good, Joe. How are you doing? Pretty good. Looks like you survived most of my experiments in the last <laughs> couple of weeks. We'll talk about that a little bit later. What have you been working on? Um, all sorts of fun with FM Perception Next. Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing, I, we talked a little bit about it last time. Something I wanted to try was seeing if I could get Apple's instruments profiler working with code produced by Visual Studio for Mac. Mm-hmm. And I got it working. Kinda? <laughs> it it works about as good as could be expected. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So when you're using instruments with Xcode, every call to a function, no matter where it comes from, is grouped up. So you can say that across a whole complex process, 60% of the time is consumed pulling data out of some memory structure. And we could say Mm -hmm. what, you know, for running a particular query, how much of the time is pulling the data out, prepping it for movement, and then actually sending. And all of that stuff would be very specific over multiple runs. Instruments with Visual Studio calling a function from two different sources is treated as two different functions. But in the case of something like a loop that calls a function many times, all of those are grouped up. So I can't profile a whole large process at one time, but I can profile the pieces of a process. Hmm. And so like that generally, that'll that'll meet my needs, kinda. Like it's not perfect and you end up doing some some premature optimization. But what I could do is say, okay, turn off everything else and just do custom functions. Mm -hmm. Because that's kind of a, a reasonably sized slice. And then I could run that through and would get really good results for it. Um, and since a large portion of parsing custom functions is parsing the calculations, it worked. So yeah, I, I rewrote kind of the, not so much the calculation parser, but the thing that controls the parser. Mm-hmm. So that rather than parse the calculations as they're found, basically every place that the code could run into a calculation it would immediately parse that calculation and then keep going. Now it retains them all, stacks them up into a big array, and then at the tail end of the process, runs them all. And what's interesting about it is it's not always faster, Mm -hmm. but it's way more consistent. Yeah. So I would see, you know, time being consumed on, on a particular test batch for custom functions is like 1.8 to 3.5 seconds doing it the old way. And the new way was two seconds every time. <laughs> so it, it's possible that the old process could generate a result faster, but it wasn't likely. 
Well, something that you could do with a new process that you couldn't do with the old process, when you stack them all up before you process them, you could dedupe them. Hmm. Especially all of the simple calculations, like just rather than parsing all of the get current date over and over and over again, just collapse those all into one thing that needs to be parsed. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Darn it, Joe. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about the number of times it parses a calculation whose calculation definition is the number one. Mm -hmm. That's, that's going to happen a lot. Mm -hmm. So uh, we know what you're working on this week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As a matter of fact, that's probably the thing that did it. So back when I originally wrote the parser, I had released a app that would just eat a DDR, parse out all the calculations, and then tell users if any of them couldn't be handled by the parser. Mm -hmm. And then I released that to a couple of developers in the community that had a lot of systems to work with. So they could just feed large chunks of systems through it and then tell me things that weren't working. It was great for getting back results. And it was really just a tester for this. And I couldn't figure out why that thing was running so much faster than this other stuff. Mm -hmm. I think that's the trick. I think that's what I did before because I didn't need to test every calculation. I just needed to test every different calculation. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. You're welcome. I ruined all of your projects, but in like the best way. <laughs> yes, that is absolutely what I should do, Joseph. <laughs> oh no, he's calling me Joseph. I'm in trouble now. <laughs> so yeah, so basically running it uh, catch as catch can would sometimes hit the cores in a different way. And mm -hmm. so it would just cause weird shifts in the performance the new process always hits the same way and it's really close to the fastest possible and i think that deduping that list is probably going to result in like a 80 or 90 percent speed increase there so yeah. that's that's the real performance benefit <laughs> it's just not there yet but it, it will be that one's totally gonna work Oh, such an idiot. Uh, okay. No, you're not an idiot. You just have to get out of the problem space to be able to solve stuff like that. Yeah, it just feels really obvious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. Um, it's also making me really hungry to shift gears over to the Windows development mm. because I want to play with their performance tools and see if they're better. Yeah. Now that I'm thinking of that, it's probably better to find a smaller, more reasonable chunk of Windows code and just test that and see what their performance tools look like. Um, I mean, I have to shift over to Windows development at some point, but I don't know if right this second is the time. That's always where the pressure is for me is when does it make sense to do that? And part of the difficulty is it always makes sense to do that. 
Like it has to happen. I mean, can you just instead of taking FM perception next to Windows right now, can you go use FM comparison and kind of use that as a way to get used to those tools and see what it can do? Since you've already got code that works on both platforms, that might be a better thing to compare against. That's Joe's second brilliant idea of the podcast. Thanks, Joe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to rename this to project management. Joe makes a fantastic vocal rubber ducky. Mm-hmm. The sage. Here's my whole huge problem. Just do this. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> needs a Joe. If only I could do that with my own projects. I'm completely incapable of that. That's my job. And maybe I haven't been doing my job well, but. No, that's why we do this podcast. Yeah. (sighs) It's always lovely that everybody else gets to listen to me do that. (laughs) Yay. Uh, You should, listeners, you should hear all the stuff I cut out. (laughs) (laughs) The other nice thing about playing with the Windows dev is I really want to see if chromium resolves the we've got a small bug in ag grid display when resizing windows Mm -hmm. yeah this is a weird one um this only happens so i I have no idea what what happens to a browser when you click the view option to zoom in or out or use the keyboard shortcut to zoom in or out Mm -hmm. I, i have no idea what the browser is saying behind the scenes the way that Dave implemented this in our view project was basically changing how many points a rem represents. So he's changing a number and that number is being used as a scalar across everything else. So everything is being multiplied by one rem, which is basically a pointer to an underlying value that Dave is controlling when we zoom in and out. That's probably how browsers work. I don't know. I've never made a browser, but we've got... If you look at FM comparison, you can zoom in pretty far. You can zoom out pretty far. We need to actually put some limiters on that because you can zoom things till they get so big that the, the UI becomes unusable and it's so small that the UI becomes un, unusable. Unseeable. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think six, maybe six zoom levels on either direction would probably be optimal. Um, but the way that that works is our UI, everything in our UI scales really well with that up until a point. And in FM Perception Next, we started the project from basically just a copy of FM Comparison where we deleted out all of the business logic and just kind of kept the scaffolding. And it does the exact same thing for all of the custom components that I've written. They all zoom as I would expect, but the AG grid contents, the grids themselves will zoom. It's like they will, you can see the borders grow a little bit, which isn't really that helpful, but the content of the grid stays the same. And I had thought when I just uncovered this bug a couple of weeks ago, I thought it was something that I had done when I was overriding some of the theme style on AG Grid. So we're importing the SCSS version and just overloading a couple of styles, a couple of classes to get, basically just reduce the padding around the grid size because by default it's got a pretty generous amount of padding and we want a little bit more compact data flow so i i was setting that and i thought that was what caused the issue 
But when I went to look into it further, I disabled that code and it was still happening. And then I disabled the part that was importing the SCSS version and just did the regular CSS version. It was still happening there. And then on a whim, I just tried it in a browser because we, the development environment we're working on, it's just a, a local development environment. And right now the we're doing mostly development in a copy of FM Perception Next, which is loading from a static URL on the machine, but you can open that in a browser as well. It can't load data, but it can at least put some stuff on, on screen. So I tested it there and everything is working just fine. So it's this <laughs> weird combination of like, all of this works. It's this one type of object that's not scaling. And it, I don't know if it's the way that we've implemented the zooming thing. And I also can't remember if this worked before I got to FM comparison. So Dave, before I got involved, he had AG grid working for some basic views um, just to do some like tech demos at user groups. And I can't remember if zooming in and out of that content was working. So yeah, it's a weird problem that we're, it would be, I guess it would be worth seeing if it's also happening on Windows, if this is maybe a, a WebKit bug. Yeah. If it's if it's happening on Windows, then yes, it's probably something that I did or that you did rather mm -hmm. than a browser issue. If it works great on Windows, which uses Chromium, then it's a particular implementation detail of WebKit mm -hmm. interacting with AG Grid. Yeah. And that'll be more exciting, but also easier to write Google search criteria for. Yeah, it may be, I don't know if this is even a thing that is possible, but it may be worth looking into at the native app level, seeing if you can pass a zoom level to the web view that's on the, the layout. Like I guess in FileMaker terms, could we pass a zoom level to the web viewer, which right. I don't think we can do in FileMaker, but is it possible in the stuff that you're working in? I don't know. Yeah, I think if it was that easy, I would have done it that way at the beginning. Mm -hmm. But that yeah. doesn't mean that it hasn't changed. I mean, it's been two years since I wrote that code the first time. Yeah. Who knows if that's possible now. The other big fun was starting to play with file management, mm -hmm. i.e. moving from a in-memory SQLite database to an on-disk SQLite database. And the cool part at the beginning of that is there's just one tiny little piece of the initial connection string that has to change. Basically, rather than having the word in memory surrounded by colons passed as a string, I pass it a file path. Mm. And that's it at its simplest level. It broke so many things <laughs> because the second time it ran, it grabbed the exact same file path and just started cramming more data in there. So adding in logic that goes, oh, so I've been past a path for a file that already exists and already has data populated, therefore don't add this stuff don't add, don't add anything to it but if you run into a spot where the file path didn't exist and it had to make a new empty database now we have to do the parse process 
that was a little fun. <laughs> it, it, I ended up slowly migrating code through multiple levels of control to the point that the view controller for the UI eventually became the thing that was determining what happens, which is the right answer, but it was not where it was before because it was just always universally, we're going to do it in memory. And every mm -hmm. time you do it in memory, you get a brand new database every time. So um, moving from in memory to on disk had about a 30% performance penalty, which is worse than I was like than I would like, but dramatically better than I feared. Mm -hmm. I was afraid it was going to be a two or three X, not a 0.3 X. Um, so that's cool. And then restoring from disk is super fast. Mm -hmm. It's so fast. It broke our developer UI. Yeah. Um, when when the data is prepped and the parsing is done, a signal is sent to the UI to reflect the state change, i.e. we are ready for you to interact with this data. And that's worked great for a couple of months. And now if you're if you're restoring from a previously run analysis, that signal that says that the data is prepped and it's ready for you to interact with it was getting fired off before the UI had finished rendering and was ready to receive and handle messages. And so it was going, I'm ready. And the UI was like, okay, now we're ready. And never changed. Yeah. So right now it actually has like a one second delay built into it. It preps the data and then waits a second and then says the message that it's ready to go. <laughs> and that's, not the right solution, but it's a fine solution for now. I mean, all mm -hmm. of this stuff gets ripped out once we're doing file picking and, and file management and oh my gosh, does that open a giant can of worms? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. We talked about that last week on a call for about close to two hours. Yeah. We just, the, the longer we talked about the problem space, the bigger the problem space got. <laughs> yeah. So it works and it's, fast and it doesn't hit perf performance as badly as possible but it's a lot of work to turn it from hey this works and is functional to a quality user experience and that's going to be a lot of code mm -hmm. no matter what mm -hmm. the decisions are that we make and there's still a bunch of decisions we have to make about how we want that to work yeah. Ugh. Yeah. In the short term, it's it's very handy to be able to open some of these larger solutions with just a saved copy of it without having to wait mm -hmm. for the parsing. So, friend of the show, Josh, sent us some XML that can be used for multi-file solution because most of what I was testing with was just single file stuff, and I just grabbed a small subset of those files to parse them all together, mainly because I was working on the, the file options UI and needed something more than a single file in that list to be able to test stuff. 
And every time I opened, I just picked like six files that were all named with the same prefix. And every time I would parse those, it would take about two minutes or so. And because of this wonky front end development environment, I have to open a new window fairly often, you know, particularly like changing router structure, changing VOX store stuff, or adding new components to the component tree, all kind of break our live preview session and end up having to start a new session. And when Dave sent me the new version last week, that basically saves a, a copy of that parsed XML as a database. And then every new window just reopens the same database. And now it's just, it, it's as long as it takes to open a window as all, that's all the time it takes for me to reopen these over and over again. So it's really kind of great. Yeah, and being able to run a large complex analysis once mm -hmm. and just restore from that multiple times is awesome. Yeah. E even for me, though most mm -hmm. of the time I'm making new ones because I'm working with the parser, but you don't yeah. have to do that every time. You're going to get the same result every time from the parser. So why do you have mm -hmm. to run it every time? Now yeah, exactly. Yay. Um, so, uh, what have you been working on? So lots of FM perception next. Um, I finished up a couple of client projects, not that you're not a client, other client projects, um, last couple of weeks. So had a couple of things that I've been kind of noodling on since the holiday break and got those deployed. So it's been kind of mostly working on your stuff for FM perception and it's it's worked pretty well with this i'm taking a break from side projects thing um so i've had a chance to just kind of work on a part-time schedule the last couple of weeks but still get lots of work done so yeah lots of work on fm perception next and i was thinking this morning about how this project differs from fm comparison and it seemed like fm comparison we spent months of design iteration, planning things out, planning features out, deciding how things were gonna flow, how things were gonna navigate, how the data was structured. And then we executed the implementation really in a short period of time, like the, the few weeks leading up to DevCon. If you probably look at the, the number of commits mm -hmm. and what was in those commits, None of those commits had original code per se. They had implementation of stuff that we had solved in May and June. And then we just very quickly iterated on stuff and we're banging out new features left and right. FM perception, because of this is a rewrite of an existing app, it's almost the entirely opposite approach where all of the business logic decisions have been solved by Dave over the last two or three years, or four years, however long it's been. Um, and for the most part, like we're adding new features that the other app doesn't have, but for the most part, we're focusing on implementation and it's especially on my end, there's a lot less architecture and structure and way more just like, okay, today I'm diving into file options and I won't be done for another three days because file options are very complicated. <laughs> And there's a lot of data there. Mm -hmm. How are we going to, you know, display all that data? Um, and file options. I picked file options because it sounded like an easy one. <laughs> <laughs> I 
you you should have asked <laughs> yeah and i haven't even gotten to like the very tricky items like layout objects and script steps yet those mm -hmm. are going to be some of the most complicated oh yeah but yeah working on a lot of that stuff individual views and we've got kind of two projects that we're working on at the same time one is just called the building blocks project as we're assembling pieces that are going to be reused so some good examples from last week is i made uh he grid custom cell renders for boolean values and a couple other data types and then column filters to be able to filter data on those those custom renders so you know the boolean is a good example where dave talked about this a couple episodes ago we have true false and never for lack of a better term <laughs> never null empty uh, basically we have, we have, yeah or maybe not relevant or never was set in the first place a lot of the check right. boxes particularly in file op options are like this is either true or false or it was never set in the first place like it was just inheriting mm -hmm. the default value of off but not with a false value so I, I wanted a way to represent those besides uh he's giving me a one and a zero in most cases there's a couple of cases where we, we're getting strings or true and falses, but I think he's converted all those to a one or a zero. Yeah, those are just bugs. Yeah, because SQLite doesn't have a native Boolean type. So he's giving me ones and zeros, and then I convert those to, well, I don't convert them at all. I just render them um, either as a empty field or empty cell or a checkbox with a check with an X in it or an empty checkbox. And then wrote the column filtering to be able to filter on those three things and then make sure the sorting works with all three types. So that was the kind of stuff that was like, this is a little bit of shared rendering that I'm writing as components and that I can reuse that on every AG grid that needs to render one of those types of columns. This specific feature was kind of head scratchy because AG Grid has a whole lot of ways to solve problems because it's implemented. And I think it started as an Angular project, but I think that's where the AG comes from. But it's implemented in Angular, React, Vue, and vanilla JavaScript. And we're using the Vue stuff, but a lot of times the answers that I'm finding are written in the Angular version or just the vanilla JavaScript. So I have to kind of do a mental translation. And when it came time to looking for custom renders, the documentation on how to write custom renders isn't particularly helpful. Like it is technically viable and the way that they do it works, but the much less documented way, I don't know why it was less documented, but basically do this as a view component and then pass the component to this other weird property on a column that no one talks about. But it was like a, cell component framework or something like that or rendering rendering framework so all these things that have a a suffix of framework basically you can pass a, a view component and this is one of those weird situations where we're dealing with what i i don't know if this has an official name but implied parameters you you can't call that component and pass it parameters but it does get parameters passed to it from the grid when it's rendered. So a good example would be, I write a Boolean render and it's a view component with a little bit of template code at the top and a couple of 
script tags or script tag at the bottom with a little bit of, you know, a couple of functions and that those functions can reference something called params. And then in that params namespace, you can get data out from the data object. You can get specific values out. You can get aggregate data about the collection. So it's basically a, a reference to everything that's happening in the grid. So from a single cell, I can reach anywhere else in the entire data set. So anywhere else in that specific record or laterally across records, but it's kind of immaterial, but it was, it's weird because I'm never passing params, but I, I can reference params there. And I actually had to go through and change some of the linter properties because the linter is like what you just wrote isn't valid code. But <laughs> in the grid's environment, it totally is. So some weird stuff going on there, but I eventually wrapped my head around it. And now that I know how to do it, I can add them pretty quickly for other stuff. Awesome. So yeah, lots of work there. I got a lot of work to do on it this week. Um, I don't have any big deliverables anytime in the next week or two. I've got some stuff going on in the middle of the month. Um, but it should be the next couple of weeks is mostly FM perception, which uh, is kind of nice to just work on one thing so that I'm not bouncing between several projects. When I'm working on one thing, I, I tend to be able to work less because I'm using kind of background time mm -hmm. to solve problems when I'm just, I have one problem space running as like a separate thread in the back of my mind <laughs> as opposed to two or three. So it's kind of nice to, I'm working on one project and I'm putting in less hours than I would if I was working on two projects, trying to produce the same amount of code. So yeah, weird, but it works for me. Mm -hmm. Last week on Friday, I duped Dave into spending two hours looking at a side project thing. Um, it's a generous way to put it. Dave humored me for two hours. Sure. And we, I wanted to look into Mozilla Hubs. And it's something that's been around for a couple of years now. It is a basically a, a kind of a... VR and AR desktop and tablet, smartphone, kind of private social space. So you can create a, a hub or a room or a space and it's got some basic customization built in directly to the, the web app itself. And then you can invite other people and you can have public hubs, you can have private hubs, you can have hubs that are only available to authenticated users. You can have hubs that are only available to people with the link, so pretty, pretty extensive like privacy tools there, and I've seen it. You know, Dave and I tried it when it first came out years ago, um, just in the early implementation of Web VR and Firefox, and we tried it there, and we weren't super impressed then. It was pretty buggy, but it's been in active development for three or four years now, and it's gotten a lot of attention, and it's something I see a lot on Twitter. A lot of people in the WebXR or just in the VR community at large use Hubs a lot for events, you know, kind of like pre and post show events, like hangout spaces. Um, people have watch parties there to watch 
you know, tech events or shuttle launches or Mars missions, landing on Mars, that type of stuff. And it's, it does a whole lot. Um, over the course of a couple hours, we figured out that you can do some pretty neat stuff with it, including just being able to, I, I can just paste a link into a video and we can both watch the video on a giant screen inside the space, that kind of thing. And I was looking into it to see if I could maybe solve some of my WebXR problems with it. And I don't think that I can, um, but it's still a pretty interesting tool. So the things that it can do are, you know, kind of networked multiplayer, multi-user sessions. We can share documents. We can, I don't know, just do all kinds of stuff. You, there's a, a chat built in. There's a little kind of emoji picker. Um, you can give presentations. So as an admin, if you own a hub, you can decide that, you know, this is a presentation. So all the audience is muted. Nobody can talk. Um, that type of thing. But you can share all kinds of content inside it. You can import 3D models from Sketchfab or your own 3D models. You can, there's a little avatar customizer. There's some third-party avatar integrations, a lot of really neat stuff. But what it seemed to be lacking was any kind of scripting interface. There is a custom, like a customizable environment called Spoke, which is great for making, basically it's a level editor. Think of what you would see in, in Unity or Unreal Engine when you're just doing level design, when you're not actually worried about logic. So you can make an environment and attach some basics, basic functionality to objects in that environment, but it wasn't really a full-blown uh, programming interface. And I may be wrong about that. I think this entire thing is made with A-Frame and custom components built on top of A-Frame. So it may just be that you work with A-Frame or work with JavaScript to do all this stuff. And I just haven't found that entry point in, like I didn't spend a lot of time digging through the code for hubs. I was just looking looking at it from a user perspective. So yeah, it was really, really neat, but uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I could think of lots of things to do with it, but I couldn't really think of any way to do a lot of the weird side projects that I wanted to do with it. But what did you think about it, Dave? Um, I thought it was really neat. Um, pretty stable. Um, yeah, it's come a long way in that regard. Oh, it was yeah. Pretty, pretty buggy the first time. Um, as far as like group things of that in of that style, my brain immediately pops to things like FileMaker user group meetings and DevCon slash engage. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking about trying to bring those people into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had a lot of flexibility and a lot of control. And I think in the end, to a certain degree, too much. Mm. Um, it, it kind of needs a attendee interface. Yeah. Where... You know, I've simplified it to the point where there's one big room and everybody's going to come in and watch a presentation and I need the ability to mute people, but then unmute the audience at certain points or something like that. Mm -hmm. But you kind of had to know how to play 3D video games to move around effectively and, and to interact with it properly. And... I'd really like to see kind of a version of this 
that allowed a creator to create the space and then produce a simplified UX for people to come and experience that space Mm -hmm. where kind of everything set up, everything else is controlled. Um, movement was simplified, that kind of thing. Like, you know, the, the WASD keys had forward, backwards, and like strafe left and right, and you were doing mouse look. Mm-hmm. People who are used to playing 3D video games, that's simple. Everybody yeah. else, that's an insurmountable obstacle. Yeah, especially seeing how lots and lots of developers just use a MacBook with a trackpad. Yes, it was and not that- great from a trackpad. Mm-hmm. And just being able to say, no, 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 in this situation, we're going to do it this way. I was actually looking this morning and making note that Mozilla Hubs is open source. So mm-hmm. I think it would make a really great starting point for someone to build that kind of thing. Um, yeah. But it would be really cool for something like Engage where we wanted to set up session rooms mm-hmm. and a schedule. You just click the URL and it pops you right in and you're now an attendee. Um, people can hang out in rooms and watch stuff and have room specific conversations and, you know, or maybe a, a bar sort of thing, the, the, the classic lobby bar. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And if you've I mean, got a VR headset, you can put hand gestures in and be expressive and yeah, it's really cool. It just doesn't, it doesn't scale down I, I think that I think the area that it probably scales down a little bit more intuitively is you were looking at it from the desktop browser. I was mostly looking at it from VR, but there is a, a tablet and smartphone version as well. And that oh. is much just like tap to walk around. I think if you told most people just open this link on your phone or your iPad, um, it would be pretty self-explanatory about what to do and how to move around. Um, the other thing that I really like about this kind of concept, especially for like meetups or after parties from meetups, so say that, you know, Dave was doing a presentation on FM perception, you know, does the presentation on zoom or records it as a video, everybody can see it. And then a hangout space afterwards where you can answer questions because all of the audio is spatialized based on the position of the avatar you could have, you know, breakaway conversations relatively easily. So say I was attending this event, Dave giving the presentation, he's answering questions about the thing, you know, getting feedback and stuff. And then I see Delph's in the audience and I, I want to ask him about some view thing that's been on my mind. Delph, can, our avatars can literally just walk away and no one has to hear us as we have a conversation down the hall. And that part is kind of cool. Oh, yeah. So yeah, Definitely. it was really neat stuff. Um, I'm, I've been trying to peer pressure my fellows at uh, VR Columbus into like, hey, let's have meetings here, but we'll see if that happens. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I we, we spent time with it Friday, you know, answering questions about it, figuring out what it can do. Um, it's a really cool thing to add to my toolkit, but it's not the panacea that I was hoping I was like, I can just do all of my WebXR stuff here. Yeah. So, yeah. The other thing I wanted to touch on, um, I've had my 
side project stuff kind of on hold the last couple of weeks as I've been trying to get myself back into working condition. And I think I'm ready to start diving back into Babylon JS stuff. And a lot of this is coming from the fact that I just shipped a bunch of client projects and I'm not necessarily ready to go find the next project right away. So I think I'm going to take most of March to kind of tap the brakes on additional sales and just focus on learning what I can about Babylon JS and actually start making stuff. And I'm going to approach it a little bit differently this time. The last couple of times I've dived into it, I have learned just enough to get up and running and then start working on a project and try to use that project to learn additional stuff. So the Dave model. Yeah. Which tends to work pretty well in a lot of areas, but it was something that I, I actually said in a conversation with you last week that I didn't really realize it was a big problem until I said it, but I haven't been working in JavaScript long enough to always be able to think about solving problems in the way that JavaScript wants me to solve problems. Mm. Whereas we were talking about you know, the pros and cons of working in Unity to do some of this stuff versus working in Babylon JS. And I, I've worked in Unity and C Sharp long enough and worked in other stuff that's similar to it long enough to understand how C Sharp wants me to solve common problems. And I haven't really internalized that with JavaScript. So what I'm going to do with Babylon JS and JavaScript in general is spend the next couple of weeks, particularly just pouring over the, the, the tutorials and guides in Babylon JS and build several small things. And I'm going to leave the XR part out entirely. So keep in mind, Babylon JS has some VR and AR features, but it is not a VR and AR platform. It is a 3D rendering game engine for the browser that can do VR and AR, but you don't have to. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to focus on just stuff I can build on the laptop that I can run in the screen in Firefox or Edge or whatever, um, and just leave the VR stuff out of it for now and try to get used to thinking in the way that it wants me to think. Particularly, I, I have a lot of room to grow in my understanding of asynchronous code in JavaScript, which is a very nice way of putting that. <laughs> in other words, it breaks my head every time. Yeah. A async is not easy. Yeah. Whereas like, you know, a good example, you know, trying to work with express servers and asynchronous API calls in the express server, like in, inside the endpoint, there was some of these problems I was running into that were just so frustrating that it was faster for me to recode the entire backend in PHP than to solve those problems. And, you know, that took 45 minutes after, you know, after four hours of banging my head against the async stuff in JavaScript. So, so yeah, I'm going to spend essentially the next two weeks learning what I can about Babylon JS and we'll kind of see what happens at the next podcast to see how I feel about it then. Um, but I'm going to do two things to spend some time on this. One is basically stop working an hour early each day to work on the tutorials for however long that takes. It'll probably take a, a week or two to get through the documentation. And two is something that Dave had suggested a couple of years ago pick a day for this type of work, which I'm going to start doing on basically barring any kind of emergency 
Friday is the day that I work on these WebXR stuff, at least all the way through March. Hmm. Um, so I can do good code Monday through Thursday for client stuff. You know, if there's emergencies, I can still pick it up on Friday or if there's a particularly interesting problem that I'm working on Thursday and don't want to stop working on it, then I would mm -hmm. do that. But this is, this is more of like a general guide of like, you know, if it's possible, I'm going to spend Fridays working on building stuff here. So the, the last hour of the day is about working through the documentations and the guides and tutorials. And then the Fridays is about trying to build something with that stuff. So I'm going to give myself at least the next two weeks to do that. And then possibly the rest of March to do that. And then if I, if I haven't really made significant progress by the end of March, then I think it's probably time to start thinking about fallback positions. Um, like if I can't train my brain to think about solving problems this way, then maybe I shouldn't be working in this environment and I should just go do this, this stuff in unity. And at first, when I first say that, I'm like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to, I don't want to deal with native apps. All that kind of sucks, but unity has a, a pretty awesome feature called the WebXR exporter. So I haven't looked into exactly what's possible with this thing yet, but you can, make stuff in Unity, export it as basically a huge, gnarly, ugly blob of JavaScript and <laughs> HTML that you can put on a web server. You're never going to be able to code, like make modifications to that output. Like it is basically, you always export from Unity for every new version. But that may be something I want to consider further down the line. But for the at least for March, I'm not going to go that route because I really like the idea of not having all of this stuff tied up in kind of a closed platform like that. So that's the plan. When are you going to learn all this Babylon JS stuff? <laughs> uh, you know, we, we talked about me digging into that. And honestly, right now, most of my brain is so FM perception next that I was actually more thinking of like 3JS. Mm. Um, just, mm, there's a, a particular style to the kinds of pictures that are appearing in my head that I, I don't know. Yeah. It, it, it's going to wait until I have a project. Like mm -hmm. I, I've never had any luck learning a technology because I wanted to learn a technology. Yeah, I, I have to have a project. And right now I don't, I, I could make up a VR project. Not so much a VR project, but a 3D project. Right. Like a good one would be like a layout visualization tool mm -hmm. for layout objects, kind of the 2020 equivalent of FM X-ray specs. Could be kind of cool to build in a tool like that. Right. And for that kind of thing, going for something as heavy as Babylon JS feels a little weird. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm just, I'm going to start by throwing away 95% of what it does. Well, and again, no. that's true for a lot of things. Well, I mean, that's, if you're thinking about importing every feature of Babylon JS then yes, but I, you don't do that. All the imports are separate. Mm -hmm. So you, you don't just, you know, import Babylon JS at the top of the JavaScript file and get 400 megs of JavaScript. <laughs> you can do that, but nobody does that. 
they're, they're separate <laughs> imports for all of the features that you're enabling for your project. And this is where my overall strategy breaks down because I don't know enough about Babylon JS to know that that's even an option. Yeah. Yeah, I would say generally speaking, if you're building something that you want people to interact with, I mean, you can do it in both 3JS and Babylon JS, but it, it depends where you're on the slider of like data viewing versus data viewing and interaction. Mm-hmm. The further you go up that interaction slider, then the more you should probably be using Babylon JS, in my opinion. 3JS can do all the same stuff, but it's way more about rendering 3D content than working with 3D content. Um, so it really depends there. Like our layout visualization thing for FMX Ray Specs could probably be totally fine in 3JS because we're not we're not applying physics to those things. We could, and that would be hilarious, but <laughs> that wouldn't really be useful. Um, <laughs> yeah, just let this layout settle. Yeah, for layout rendering, no, but for things like um, um, call chain diagrams, mm-hmm. I've yeah. seen stuff done where you get even spacing for an arbitrary number of objects mm-hmm. by actually giving them repulsive gravitational fields. <laughs> yeah. And so every object is pushing on every other object and tries to find its own blank space. Um, you can actually see some of this kind of stuff. I think it's Inspector Pro mm. that does it for their kind of reference diagram. And when you open it, it all just starts It starts moving and spacing out until it finds kind of a happy medium and then stops. It, yeah, the, uh, the call chain diagram, but as a series of gravitational entities where something with lots and lots of references is like a big planet with heavy gravity with lots of little moons orbiting around it. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. Could be fun. I, I, I don't know. There's there, it, The more I think about it, the more weird pictures pop into my head. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I was in my head was building a 3D rendered VR representable a search engine mm-hmm. that allowed you to kind of query a crowd. I don't know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It, it kept, I'd get so far and it would be awesome up until a point where it would just break. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I probably should. I tell you what, next two weeks, I will find some time. I will dig into Babylon JS. Okay. We will both have the ability to chat a little bit about Babylon JS on our next episode. Cool. Yeah, I'm going to use the time to make a couple of small things, maybe just like some like stereotypical tech demo type things. You know, a common VR trope is like you know, a TORS system, way to move through a static environment of like images and 360 videos as if it were a museum, mm-hmm. things like that. Or, uh, you know, a simple product showcase where you have 3D models of things and people can rotate around, resize them, stuff like that. So just like dumb things where I'm not designing applications, but I'm just implementing mm-hmm. known features using the tooling, try to get used to the tooling. That's uh, what I'll be doing. Sounds like a plan. <laughs>